0: Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Hope you are well. This episode is all about one of the UK's most successful high street retailers of the last few decades, Julian Richer. Julian uh, bought and sold his first piece of hi-fi equipment for a profit at just 14. He opened his first store in London five years later. And yeah, a few decades on, his Richer Sounds chain has more than 50 shops, 400 staff, an annual turnover of almost 190. Million pounds. He also gives away fifteen percent of all of his profits to charity. Now, alongside his retail career, he's also an author, very successful author too. An industry consultant, famously advising both Asda and Marks and Spencer over the years. He also, you might not know, is the drummer in a funk and soul band called Ten Millennia. uh, And just a couple of days after we spoke they were due to play at the Royal Albert Hall um, supporting Jules Holland so we talk a bit about that Uh, but in this really fascinating interview uh, Julian explains what drove him to start buying and selling at such a young age uh, how his band has progressed from playing from six people to 6,000 just pretty much overnight and why he's glad he used his own name on the shop even though he thinks becoming a celebrity is a curse now we spoke uh, in his house in Yorkshire and Julian did have a bit of a cough so he had the occasional sort of break for coughing which I've cut most of them out but if you hear some coughing in the background that's why uh, and my thanks to Julian for, for struggling through it even though he had a pretty sore throat anyway enjoy so you have a massive gig that you're preparing for this week at the Royal Albert Hall what what a privilege absolutely you're looking forward to it also
1: pretty uh nervous about it it's obviously it's just the venue has got these connotations we've done about 500 gigs but whenever I tell people we are playing the art art hall they sort of take notice yeah they didn't take notice when I played the dog and duck quite the same enthusiasm
0: (laughs) and is it supporting
1: Jules Holland isn't it yeah it's only only support on the night and uh, I guess it must be his most important gig of the year it's not part of the tv show it's just mm. that like he does he not just he, he tours a lot but this is his his premium show i guess and we're really honored to be supporting him being so how did it, how did that come about by me being cheeky <laughs> okay but it, that sound that's a sort of simple explanation but i approached his manager um when we we're looking for a manager for the band and i sent him my music he, he was very politely told me to um you know that he was too busy <laughs> and I then followed up with well let me support Jules then I won the gigs you know and he said all right then okay and no you know he wasn't he wasn't he was very nice he let us do that and right. on the basis you don't ask you don't get Well, and you know, when I told Rosie, my wife, what we were going to be doing that, and she's the singer in the band, she said, you're crazy, you're mad, don't be ridiculous, we'll never, you know, da, da, da. <laughs> anyway, you don't ask, you don't get. And he said, I think because he, he'd he said no to me on the one, he didn't want to say no again. He said, all right, send me the music, send him the music. No, I'd already sent him the music, actually. Hmm. He said, yeah, and he gave us a gig, you know, and then... Uh, so this is actually the 11th gig we're, we're supporting jaws at the Albert Hall. You don't right. get the Albert Hall straight away. And the, you only do a maximum. He likes to rotate. They like to rotate the support. And uh, so no one sort of monopolises it. So we've done
0: sort of three a year the last few years. And this is the, the big one. So how did the... Um, how long have you been doing the music? Has that been going on all the way through from no, when you were young? Or it, is that something it, you took up later?
1: Well, it started as a, a sort of
0: therapy idea.
1: Although it was an accident. I um I played a bit at school and mm. did one gig and the housemaster said, You've got to stop playing drums. And that was the end of my musical career <laughs> at school. Well, it is the most noisy antisocial instrument that money can buy, as we all know. And uh, but I sort of had it in my veins. The trouble is I then lived in a little flat in London and again you couldn't play drums in a flat and they didn't mm. have electronic drums when I was a kid, we're going back a few years, <laughs> and I just shelved them. And my parents also, who were also sort of full of common sense so look you can learn drums if you want son but you'll end up being poor and deaf and that, <laughs> that sort of closed it really and uh, so I just parked it for 30 years and then and then I was uh, 46 right. and I sort, sort of went to a music shop in Pockington near where I live in East Yorkshire. and uh, a postcard on a shop window said aging rock and roll is required called Derek <laughs> true story and it just Tickled me. It was just an itch. I wanted to scratch for all these years and my business has been reasonably successful I'd read in the papers about how you should take up a hobby as you get a bit older keep the mm. brain ticking over so I called Derek who'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's and uh, He'd, he'd played as a kid and he wanted to put a band together before he was too ill to play true right. story and we uh, uh And we got together and we were terrible. I mean absolutely <laughs> terrible I mean embarrassing terrible the only gigs we could get were charity gigs and yep. we were supposed to be helping them I think they were helping us being kind and we couldn't <laughs> because we couldn't charge so we gave our time for nothing and um, we, we got better in time and then Derek was too ill to play because of his Parkinson's mm-hmm. and he, he passed away This year actually and oh, uh, this year th- Yeah, I mean oh, 13 years later he, he, and dear dear, we became dear friends wonderful And we dedicate all our music to him actually the albums we've done and uh, haven't forgotten him of course So good man and he got it started got us started and you know what it's like once you start something like you and your podcast yeah.
0: <laughs> So did he play in 10 millennia as well? Or no, did he, that no? was later. So oh, okay. we started off playing
1: and uh We started calling ourselves right at the beginning. You know, you go through these incarnations, you're a bass player, you know all about it. We started (laughs) off as time again, because that was quite relevant. And then I started doing gigs. And then Rosie, Derek became too ill to work, uh, to play. So I then joined a jazz trio. Uh, They then, I played for six months for them for free. And then they took me, you know, outside of gig and said, sorry, Jules, this isn't working. And I was literally in tears. I was so upset that I'd been thrown out of the band. So I vowed that I wouldn't ever get thrown out of a band again. And the only way I could do that was by naming the band after myself. Okay, because it's very hard. So I, I set up a band called... Uh, Jules of the gang you see because yeah. they couldn't fire Jules, right? I mean it's <laughs> a Commercial strategy coming to play here So uh, Jules of the gang. at the same time Rosie had seen me going out doing gigs without her and she said well I'm sick of this and I said well you better learn to sing then and she never sung a note in her life really yeah So she then started singing and um, in Jules of the gang and then the problem was uh, And she was okay and she's got a lot better over the
0: years. But she sounds great on the She sounds album, yeah. great,
1: and my drumming's got better, although a good producer helps that, of course. <laughs> so we, um, we we then, but then people started thinking that she was Jules, you see, because you never call a band after <laughs> the, the drum, yeah. would you? And I had to patiently explain no. We call it Jules and the Gang, so I can't get fired. By this point, <clears throat> I was firmly in control of the band, so we changed it to Rosie and the Gang. Okay. And uh, we got quite a following in Yorkshire playing local gigs, and I'm just. Constantine this into like a short this is that now we're 13 years on but yeah. we then went to london and got signed by Warner, and, and 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 we had some good advisors after going through some bad advisors found some really good people And they said look rosie the gang's a great name But it does sound like a bit of a, a mitzvah band, you know a bit of a function <laughs> band and you're in london now You know talking slowly because they thought I wouldn't understand, you know yeah. But uh, They didn't realize that maybe Did I was london, I don't know But uh, I've been in yorkshire over 30 years and absolutely love yorkshire, but um, yeah. uh, Anyway, so we 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 <laughs> re, renamed the band Ten Millennia. Now Ten Millennia was my name that I came up with because right. I studied Wikipedia and the history of Yorkshire, and there've been settlements in Yorkshire for ten thousand years. Okay, and we, we all lived, worked, and loved Yorkshire. Even though we weren't all from Yorkshire, and we liked the 10, we liked the ten millennia. We thought it was a really nice subtle link to Yorkshire. They're 5 million people in Yorkshire So let's try and keep them on board and hence the name and actually it's sort of grown on all of us quite nicely
0: hmm. just as an aside actually why why how come you live in Yorkshire because you because my didn't grow up in, in uh, Yorkshire you I grew up w- in London
1: well my wife's from York and what okay. happened was we met in London She was modeling in London and uh, I was working in London. we met on a blind date I joked that she couldn't believe her luck, but it was probably more the other way around and after a few years of sort of living in a flat, sort of working six days a week, reading the papers on the 7th and going back to work again, I saw an advert for a house in Yorkshire that was ridiculously inexpensive compared to London prices. And I persuaded Rosie, let's go and have a look at it, which she didn't want to do. And we did, and it was completely unsuitable. It was falling down, had negative value. But while we were there, we'd gone up, especially for the day on the train, we said to the agent, Who's a friend to this day? This is 32 years ago. Uh, this is a guy called Tim Blankin, and he, uh, I said, show us something else as we've come on this way, and he showed us two other houses. And the, the second house of the three uh, was lovely, much much smaller, in mm-hmm. better condition, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're you know, and we're very happy
0: here to this day where you're yeah. sitting. And so, yeah, I mean, do you, pref- you prefer the lifestyle here than than back in London? Obviously, you're saying it was well, so busy there, but do you do you think it helps you in terms of all the things that you do? Well, we. In the early days, we would just come up sort of weekends, it
1: was it was mad, you know, because all our friends wanted to come up and visit, and mm. then we go back to work again. It was all a big, a bit, bit, bit hectic. And then about ten years ago, so we over at the time, we over the years, we now spend more time up here. And uh, now I'm literally in the office just a couple of mornings a month, mm. uh, but. Um, and I love being in the country, quality of life. As you get older, you don't need to be clubbing and going out every night. Not that I was ever clubbing every night, but, you know, you just don't need the, the hectic yeah. of the nightlife and all the excitement, and actually you enjoy other pursuits and think about, the, you know, the clean air and da-da-da-da and the lovely countryside, and Yorkshire yeah. is a terrific county, and we're mm-hmm. both very happy here.
0: Just back to the music for a minute, and you mentioned you are a bit nervous about Friday. What are, you, what are you nervous about?
1: Well, I suppose things going wrong... Because actually going on stage, we've done this is we've done about 20 big gigs now. We've done about 500 gigs in total, mostly little pub gigs, and we went from six to six thousand uh, people, sort of was more or less overnight, and that was a <laughs> bit daunting. And then you do a few, and a good mate of mine said, when you've done 20 big gigs, it's like you know you're used to it then. Mm. But I'm just worried about something really stupid happening or going wrong. You know, there've been these traffic holdups in london have you heard these demonstrators where people are locked in their cars for hours on end and like you know just imagine driving my drum kit to the Albert hall and (laughs) stuck for six hours and everyone's waiting for me you know things like that (laughs) you know but please god all you can do in these things is is
0: not think about it too much and do your practice and and it's god's will you do the best you can by the way speaking of taking your drum kit you just showed me your drum store before we started speaking how many drum kits are in that drum store I don't know, I'm sorry to say, but it must be a few dozen, I suppose. It looked uh, like about 40 or 50, I think. Something to... like that. I
1: mean, I, yeah, I hope by buying lots, it would make me a better drummer, but it didn't work like that. So how do you decide which kit to take? Well, the one that fits in the boot of the car. Okay, and is there just one that fits in the boot? <laughs> I got. I use the Yamaha <laughs> kit regularly, which has got lovely fittings to it, hasn't let me down. Again, like other things in life, if you get get one that works,
0: it's not broken, don't fix it, and yeah. uh, sounds good, etc. So just thinking then about... You starting out in business because you started out buying and selling pretty young didn't you was it 14
1: Yeah, I wanted to start earlier. My parents thought it was really tacky to be trading before this age wasn't dictated, you know, it just um, Earlier on I wanted to trade they said no You can swap things with your friends and I ended up with the biggest electric set before I was you know 10 but um, but then I went to this a private school at Clifton College in Bristol, which was my granddad left some money for my education, which ran out halfway through, which was very embarrassing. And my parents had to beg to pay it off, you know, a bit of credit. And the kids, they were really wealthy. And my parents were really struggling. My dad was st- actually studying to be a lawyer then. He took up law at 46, just when I was at school. So my mum had a shop in in Weymouth Street in Maribone and supported us. And it was really tough. And I just felt actually good time now to... Get permission to go into a bit of trade so I started there th- as border from 13 to 18 hmm. and I, when I was 14 I said look I want to do this take a bit of pressure off you and they didn't mind then and it paid for my so the money I started with ten pounds at school and the money I made paid for my holidays um, My you know uniforms my pocket money just took a bit of pressure off them. So
0: what did you buy with that ten pounds? Well,
1: I bought a turn and o turntable Bang & Ollison turntable and Did it up and sold it for 22 quid and I had about two pounds of costs with the advert and the exchange remark to sell What did
0: it. you do, when you say you did it? What did you do? Oh, I'm to not it? a
1: terribly technical person so I'll completely, okay. you know admit that and I I uh, It just needed a bit of cleanup and a bit of servicing and made it look pretty and it was a it was a good deal You know, it's about, you know, finding a you know buying well and selling well and and it sold and ten pounds profit in those days. That remember this is nineteen seventy three, and mm-hmm. and that was terms pocket money. So that took a lot of pressure, you know, just in its own way. Made me feel really good, and um, uh, and I was off. I was out the trap, and uh, so uh, at school then I made. I did my A levels till the age of eighteen, and I made for that initial ten pounds about four thousand pounds. By I mean that's. Turning it over, you can imagine, hundreds of times. And i mm. my deal was in my mind, I would save half and spend half. And the, the, the money I spent, I had some fun and saved my parents some money. And the other half I saved, which proved to be very helpful when I left school. Mm. So where did you grow up then before you were the, before you went to boarding school? So I grew up in the poor part of Hampstead in London, near the Finchley Road, near Swiss College, and um, and I went to a, a, a good day school, uh, mm. UCS, it's quite a well-known school, and I was like the, the thickest guy in the class, and I was getting distracted, I found it very difficult working the evenings at home, and, I was, and my parents were very disappointed, and they heard about this school in Bristol, And uh, granddad said he would left some money for my education, and it all worked out very well. That I went there, and then of course, when you get to boarding school, there's no distraction because all the kids sit Mm. in a hall for two hours every night, and you have to do your homework. I Mm. mean, it was brilliant, and that's really how it.
0: Why do you think it was then that you weren't able to perform, like you know, academically, if you like, at the normal school, not normal school, but you know, the the day day school? school. Because
1: I just think distraction. When I got home, there wasn't a. You know, it was, uh, you know, the television on and mm. the comings and goings. And, like, I didn't want to stay in my room doing homework with other thi- You know, it was just too easy. Mm. and maybe lack self-discipline. and mm. hopefully got better. But I, I found it difficult. It was much easier going to a room with a class, a teacher sitting at the end of the hall with a long face, and you've got to keep quiet and get on with your prep. when everyone else is doing it, so you don't feel you're missing out. It was as simple as that, and it worked. And I came from being the bottom of the class to actually one of the better kids academically. Not that mm. I was interested in academics Mixed,
0: Is that so? Your mum and dad effectively decided to send you there because you weren't doing as well as they hoped. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and I was terribly lucky. Only seven percent of kids in this country go to private school, and more's the pity. So, why do you think academically? You said you weren't that interested in academic stuff. Why, why was that?
1: Well, I because I had this. I explained. I went into. Business to, mm. to save my parents' pressure, but I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about money, and I'd read even at a very early age about uh, successful business people, and that was my thing. I didn't want to be. I wasn't. You can see I'm not a, a sporty uh, <laughs> um, uh, figure, um, you know, and I, I, I maybe I was insecure and and felt this is something that would, you know. Uh, give me influence, or, or I don't know. I think my parents. I remember when I was seven. Mm. Like my, I had a, a girlfriend, and the parent, her parents, brought her to school in a Bentley. You know, and and, uh, and <laughs> my parents didn't bring me to school in a Bentley. And I just I got a bit of a chip on my shoulder from early age, and certainly school made it worse. You know, all the kids parents would turn up in their rollers and bentley's and I'd make my dad park his battered Renault around the back I was really you know when you're a kid this this mm. thing it sounds embarrassing minute now I know I don't have a flash car you know and I get the tube and the bus and cycle whenever I can so uh, but in those days as, as a as a not invulnerable, but as a sensitive teenager mm. you know you you worry about these things so I, I, I you know and then By the time I was 17, I had three people working for me at school. (laughs) I had a big wad of cash, I had a wedding limo that used to drive me around on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons because I didn't want to do sport. And instead I used to go around the shops in Bristol buying up their part exchange and reselling it and uh, uh, had a good business. And, And through doing that I met someone who was opening a shop in London, in Moorgate, mm. in the city. And he said, would I like to run the hi-fi department there? And I laughed at him because I was going to be an accountant. I had it all set up. I had articles and a foundation course. And I said to my parents, that oh, I've been off this job and they were really quite impressed that I'd actually <laughs> anyone would employ me. And they said, well, why don't you try it for a year? And I never thought they'd say that. Mm. And they let me. And then within a year, I opened my, opened my first shop. Why do you think they said that at that point then? Well, I think, you know, as today, a lot of kids come out of school without having a job set up. And the fact they, they must have been Quite proud of my prowess. A bit embarrassed, maybe, but you know, I was I was earning money, you mm. know, and and that was something. And none of the other kids at school were doing that. So much so that the housemaster uh, was getting parents saying, you know, asking him where their kids' pocket money had gone, because I was selling them. They so I not stitched them up, but I sold the very nice hi-fi systems, and their pocket money disappeared. And the housemaster was getting these calls. So he said to me, look. T- totally happy with what you're doing just let me know who's buying the stuff off you so i can be prepared when i get all <laughs> questions and he was a wonderful man and i think i even dedicate my first book yeah. to him there yeah
0: and what did uh, where would the where did the accountancy come from then
1: well everyone whenever i told someone i wanted to go into business particularly family they say what well, no chance mate one <laughs> in a thousand you know make it and the rest a history but if you want to go into business, the best grounding you can have is to get a profession. You know, you've had this very expensive education, mm. studied to be an accountant, and you've got something there which at least help you academically with it. And that's, that was the route that you took if you wanted to go into business, I guess, in those days.
0: Mm. But that, that then fell by the wayside. Thank on the God.
1: Thank God. I've got nothing against accountants. I employ mm. wonderful accountants. And, uh, you know, but it just wasn't really for me. And I, I can read a balance sheet. You, know, you pick up the bits you need to know. Yeah. But, but I didn't want to be doing that all day.
0: And what about your parents then? Because I read in one of the books that they they were entrepreneurial too, weren't they? And also they worked. They had a big a stint at Marks and Spencer too, didn't they? So yeah, we we joke because I'm I'm uh, working very closely with the chief executive of MNS at
1: the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm <coughs> mentoring him and working with him on, on some really interesting projects. And we we joke. And when I meet his team, that he he asked me to stand up in front of his his top one hundred executives and tell him who I am. And I said, well my parents met at the kilburn store they were management trainees and i said you know as far as i as far as i know i may have been conceived there you know so <laughs> we had a bit of a joke about it so yes that that's in my you know could have been one of the dressing rooms but we uh changing rooms we um we uh i had that in my dna you know they would often talk at home about how amazing you know the MS people were you know the chairman would turn up in his rolls royce and instead of saying you know Rich, rich so-and-so you know that they, they were so impressed that when he came in he'd come and check the staff loose and check mm. the staff Canteen to check they were getting a, a hot meal every day and this was motherhood and apple pie to me and one of the big influences in my life in terms of my Caring for my colleagues was, was hearing them speak at M&S which I felt it's lost their way of late, and I'm working with them very much to to regain that.
0: Hmm. So did that, that? it sounds like that had a real made a real impression on you when you when they talked about it when they came home. It you really did.
1: And then another big influence on me, if we're talking influences, was my housemaster at, at Clifton College, a guy called Ernest Polak, who's who's uh, passed away. Wonderful, wonderful man. Now he was a socialist housemaster in a British public school, <laughs> a rare breed, <laughs> and he would come and tell us. About when he got back from his holidays, about how he'd got beaten up, you know, protesting against apartheid. And he was a little Jewish guy and he'd come back black and blue and made me feel, you know, real, gave me a social conscience, really. Mm. And I I was nothing at school. I was a house fifth, once demoted, which was the lowest form of prefect you could be when you left. And years after I was at school, I wrote him a thank you letter saying, look, you really influenced me. I mean, you didn't even know me at school, hardly, you know, Mm. he had 80 boys there. It was a boys only in those days. Uh, and I said look, you really a big make different big difference to me and I've tried to be an ethical capitalist into that And, and uh, we, we we started writing to each other and then he, he came to stay here several times right. uh, all the way from He, he when we went to bath after he was in Bristol and I was thinking he was a, at a school there and we became friends mm-hmm. And uh, I mean I don't have flying machines anymore, but when I did I did it I I let him borrow the. I had a jet and a helicopter, and he, I let him borrow them as a little perk of uh, an ex ex schoolboy that he taught. And that was that was. He had a lovely time, and nice. that, that was nice.
0: And yeah, you mentioned that your parents were entrepreneurial too, weren't they? What were the businesses that they had?
1: Well, mixed mixed results, really. So they met at M and S, and Dad started a business which failed. He had a little business in, in. He was the first guy to bring velour into this country. It's a textile, mm. you know, like velvet. Yeah, and that that failed, unfortunately. Uh, although Sherry Blair's dad was a model Right for, uh, uh, Do you remember he was an actor What was he called he's passed away recently I don't know Anyway Had to lose that Maybe it's a booth and- some booth, Booth, isn't booth. It? yeah, That's exactly. That's a great name, isn't it? Have to, if you're interested, you can research yeah, one. I just remember <laughs> that. A nice-looking sort of blonde-head tall guy, and he did it at modelling for Dad's company. But it, Dad wound it up after a while, couldn't make a living out of it. And Mum supported us. Well, Dad took up law then, hmm. uh, as I mentioned, and she had a this shop at the corner of Wayman Street and Mountburn High Street just selling women's fashions. So a bit of retail in my blood there, the m background. Dad was yeah. entrepreneurial. That he bought and sold things at home, uh, you know, second-hand stuff. And... It's just just one-man band trading just from home. And I was, maybe
0: inspired me a bit as well. So what do you think it was that, you know, made you feel, I know you said you had a chip on your shoulder and, but what was it that made you feel that you could do this? You know, just go out, just that drove you to do it, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, we joke at home that, you know, I have loads of confidence and no talent. And loads, <laughs> Rosie, my missus, has loads of talent and not much confidence. And, you know, but we, we rub along really well. So I think, <clears throat> I think confidence helps. But I do joke, when people say to me, well, what do you put it down to? Well, I've, The limited success I've had. I think that that, that, so when we talk about luck, we talk about I talk about passive luck and active luck. Mm. So passive luck is look, thank God I wasn't born in a wheelchair in a poor country. You know, I've had a good education, upbringing, able body, able mind. Um, And active luck is taking advantage of opportunities. So Mm. I think that that helps enormously. The other thing is to be determined. And I think, you know, whatever you're doing, whether you're a bass player or your podcast Mm. uh, your project you're setting up, whatever it is, and you've been really successful in your career, I mean, (laughs) that's... Maybe some of it's like, you you know, you're a nice-looking guy, obviously, able body, able able-mind, da-da-da. That all helps. But mm. I'm sure you've taken advantage of opportunities. And when I look at anyone successful in any field, and you're meeting a lot of successful people at the mm. moment in this project, uh, be interesting to know, I bet you'll find a lot of them, you know, they, they get on with it, don't they? They're not staying in bed all day. They're determined and they want to succeed. And you can do it in a nice way. I try and do it in a nice way. You don't have to tread on people to climb up the ladder, you know.
0: Mm. And I guess you must have... Made some mistakes, I guess, in those early days. This
1: morning or yesterday <laughs> evening. Yeah, not a day goes by. I think it's really important, though, to admit your mistakes and learn from them. But, of mm. course, we still make mistakes. The people that tell you they don't, I mean, it's rubbish, absolute rubbish. So all the time. And a big thing about business, for instance, is this Kaizen, uh, continuous improvement. It literally means, it means good change mm. in the Japanese. And in retail, you know, you're buying stuff and selling it. You know, if you don't go forwards, you're going backwards. Everyone's going to try to undercut you and be better mm. than you. So this idea of continually improving what you do from learning from your mistakes is an integral part of, of whatever you do in life Really if you're running or painting or playing music or running a business
0: What was the biggest mistake you made in those early days? Gosh, uh, I mean
1: literally there's so many but
0: I think in the early days I was I, I didn't watch the cash uh
1: there was money coming in. Of course you in the early days you think turnover's profit. Mm. You suddenly realize that at the end of the year that you've lost money. <laughs> and so that that was a big lesson in terms mm. of tightening up the controls because we all love selling stuff, don't we? And doing the fun things. Stock takes are not glamorous, you know. We stopped even trying to make them glamorous at work. We say, look, we've all got to do things in life we don't like, me included. And mm-hmm. that's what you, know, you get up at, what, four in the morning every day. Or Sometimes, Or days yeah. you working. So <laughs> we all have to – you don't like doing that. You might – maybe you don't mind it occasionally. But, <laughs> hey, we've all got to do things in life we don't like. And, you, yeah. you know, got to eat your greens before you have your pud. And <laughs> so the stock taking is part of that, you know, and, and keeping, keeping an eye on the housekeeping, really important. I guess that's the rule. If you're in a cash business, mm. if you're yeah, in any business, watching the cash is important. You can lose money temporarily, but if you can't pay your bills, if you can't pay your staff or your suppliers, you're out of
0: business. Mm. And so that was was that the source of the sort of main problems in in the early days? Yeah, absolutely. So mm. we'd grown. We we put an ad in the Exchange Mart. I had my little shop at London Bridge,
1: and we put an ad in the Exchange Mart for an enderline Morant's cassette deck. Mm. And people were coming from all over the country to buy this cassette deck, and we thought, blimey, you know, we'd gone from taking a few thousand a week and it had gone up to fivefold just on the back of a deal, and we said, oh, let's do another deal, and got any more cassette decks, Mr. Morantz, you know, and, <laughs> and it grew from that. and then we figured that people coming to visit us, we could mail order them, but mail, postage was much more expensive then, it wasn't like next day delivery, mm-hmm. and it's quite primitive, people wanted to see it, maybe didn't hadn't heard of us, maybe didn't trust us, so people were coming to us from Manchester, mm-hmm. and we figured for every person that came from Manchester, 50 people weren't bothering to come mm. so uh, I got on the train and I looked on the map actually and and, and Stockport was on the motorway junction yeah. between Leeds and Liverpool so a much better access point so the agent there we, we hired a limo for the day where about five of us from London came up, sort of never been the north before you know <laughs> and uh, uh, the local agent tried to get us into these leases and expensive shops and on the way back to the station literally opposite the station in Wellington uh, street there was um, one shop for sale of freehold in between the only things in the street were, were a public loo and a bookmaker and that was it, it that's how bad it was <laughs> and it was a freehold for £10,000 now this was a few years ago this is 30 mm. odd years ago but it was still um 35 plus years ago but that still wasn't a lot of money then and that, you know the agents were saying it's rubbish no one will go there but the whole point was we're going to be a destination mm. so Anyway, we bought it. We opened it. We had queues around the block. You know, it was mental.
0: And is that the same site that Richard Sounds is on in now? In Stockport, Stockport? no. We, we we grew out. It was so small,
1: right. and we we literally had to move. And we now got three or four shops in, interlinked now in Hillgate in Stockport.
0: That's you may right. have seen on the corner. Well, I I did. I was born in Stockport, funnily enough. Oh, I didn't realize. I now it. live in Manchester, but I, me and my brother, we both got our um, first sort of hi fi. Separates from Richard. You're saying all the right off. things, buddy. In 1993. <laughs> well, there you go. I think we've still got the receipts. Well, there you go. So that was 25 years ago. Yeah. Gosh. So yeah, well, you've got the you've got more than one site now. haven't you? That's they're right. They're all locked together. It's,
1: it's three or four windows in a row. It's four or five, maybe. But yeah, as soon as they right. can we buy the next door. Yeah. Yeah, it's going really well. So that, that was, was, my was second that, store.
0: The, that was the the moment when you realised that it could work as a, as a chain. That was the sort of real flashbow moment because yeah. I
1: had a friend who had a shop in Barking who made a lot of money and he called HyperFi. I don't think it's there anymore and he invested the money and probably did a very nice living out of it. But I was... I'd opened the shop at 19. So did I want one shop the rest of my life or, you know, or should I have a go? And actually trying it nationally and hmm. this really so I was about 21 when we opened in Stockport and then it proved if it weren't Stockport it, the next one was Birmingham then Bristol hmm. then Leeds then Edinburgh then Cardiff and Liverpool and whoosh we were away now I opened something that didn't work and we had to relocate some and da, 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 but but generally it was very successful
0: it's interesting as well about the shops I think because um just in terms of the name because you're not one necessarily for publicity are you but calling it Richard Sound you know very much your name on the top of the shop so why was it why was that the choice well two things to say about that first of all it wasn't my idea
1: <laughs> hands up so what happened was when I was working in the shop in Moorgate when I left school do you remember I was that's what I did hmm. well they opened some more shops and they wanted me to be group retail manager within a few months of the five shops and one of the shops was at London Bridge and it was the front of a unit which was being used for offices at the back and when I was visiting the shop the guy at the back said look do you want to take the shop over because I, I want to get rid of the space why don't you why don't you take the shop as a rent rented shop in london mm. bridge walk it was a little walkway that linked london bridge to london bridge station with 70,000 wealthy commuters passing every day unbelievable mm. so um, the rent was 67 pounds a week it's ingrained in my memory there's a lovely man Vicodden had a photograph graphic shop a few doors down and he used this as overflow office space a wonderful mm. man and he was called Vicodden's photographic and I said, well, I'd like to. I made a bit of money at school. And we got, had a little chat. And he said, well, come to dinner. And his lawyer came to dinner, the three of us. And we got on really well. He was a lovely man. And I said, well, I'll put in my two grand from school. But, you know, I need more than that. And he said, well, I'll put in 20 grand. But he wanted most of the share. So he took 67% um, uh what did i start with no i took 27 percent, mm. and he took 70 at least remember 73 because legally you had to have over 25 i think mm. it was just over 21 maybe 26 i had and he had 74 that was mm. it 26 74 but so he had controlled me he controlled the business so i repaid so we we did that that was rich so and he said over this dinner uh name why don't we call it you know Richard sound and vision of Trade as rich as sounds, and that mm. was his idea, and it was We're a great cool. idea. Now, the reason I like it, you're right, I, I loathe this cult, personality cult, and I won't name names, but we all know there's certain people that, you know, billionaires who don't pay tax and think they're really clever, and, you know, and then if they're ever caught with their trousers down, the whole business suffers. Not that I'm planning on that, <laughs> but the, the, the and, and I'm really in, you know, I'm really into the team effort, and I do feel terribly guilty, you know, in all sorts of ways. I've been mean, so blessed, I'm so lucky, and it's very demoralizing for the team, which I really care about. So as a rule I haven't done any profiles. I once did for the FT a, a little one and of course that got syndicated everywhere and that was a mm. few years ago. So even that was a perfectly nice article and I was recorded undercover recently uh, <laughs> by a national paper by a very nice chap who again wrote a nice profile. But as a rule I do not I do not cultivate this mm.
0: personality. Yeah. Uh, I've seen, you've said that actually you know the sort of celebrities is a curse. I've, I've read that you'd said yeah, that. Yeah, I, I mean, think why so. Why do you think that is? Well, more from a for, for the person involved.
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> Even if... I mean, I know... I know some people who are really nice celebrities, but they can't go out. They can't go down the pub. They can't mm. go down the street without people shouting at them. And there are three things they do, that the, the great British public. They either say, excuse me, can I shake your hand? Mm. Excuse me, can I have a photo? Excuse me, can I have an autograph? Now, that's actually quite amusing the first or second time, but yeah. if you're trying to have a romantic meal with a missus or a business meeting, you cannot go out in public. Mm. It really, And it is really intrusive. I mean, I've never asked anyone for that, but you people are terribly thick-skinned today and they think that they own a bit of you. And mm. I think, you know, Luckily you're on radio, so maybe it doesn't happen too much for you. Yeah. But you know, and uh, that's why I'm doing this for you i
0: yeah, keep I never I've never done any TV work or video work or YouTube for that reason. Do you feel that that was a A good move for you, you know in terms of like, you would you would not attempt to do that now You're just like absolutely no. not tempted. I think my
1: expression is you can't get toothpaste back in the tube. Once you're famous. You can't say actually that mm. wasn't a great idea Look, unfortunately by virtue of some people's professions if you want to be in showbiz or mm. music or sport You cannot avoid it and that goes with the job And I think mm. a lot of people and I'm sure you know far more than me Actually, you know will agree that's the downside and, mm. and, and if they could turn the clock back or do things differently Maybe they do that, but I do thank God. I do have a choice I'm perfectly happy talking to people who are genuinely interested in what I'm doing, mm. but you know I i'd rather my you know just keep me out of it physically <laughs> and you know <laughs> yes
0: fine <laughs> now how how quickly then was it that the the business grew in terms of in terms of the you mentioned it was like stockport then birmingham how quickly did that all happen very slowly it... very slowly and that was quite
1: intentional and um <clears throat> you know i have friends my mate i good friend james timpson he's got two thousand mm. stores um good friend charles Dunstan. I've lost track of how many stores he's got because Carphone merged with Currys PC World, yeah, and and that's fine. What they've done, they've been very successful at. That. But I really enjoyed what I was doing. I wanted to keep control of it, so I didn't to finish the story with lovely Odden mm. As soon as I made any money, I re- bought the shares off him, and many years later, or several years later, it took me to get my hundred percent back. Mm. And. Uh, he so for the initial 20,000 loan. He, I repaid him in nine months by the way I don't think I mentioned that no. so he'd had that back He had interest on the money and he made a lot of money from the shares and I never regret a penny He, he made out of me. He gave me this lucky break no. and I loved him to the day He died. He was a lot older than me wonderful one We never had a crossword between us. I never hold it never begrudged him a penny of that and, and good luck to him And he let me buy him out over the years. So um, so I owned 100% so I had a, I had a You know, a dilemma. I could have floated the business, I could have Mm. taken the other shareholders, or I could have um, just carried on myself. And that's what I did Uh, because I really like, you know, a lot of maverick entrepreneurs find it difficult (laughs) working with other people. And, you know, it's, I I joke at work that I'm a great team player as long as I own the team. (laughs) And and that's the way it is. You know, I try and be a benevolent dictator, but, Mm. you know, and I do have nine directors around me who I do listen to, and I choose them for the fact that Mm. they're bright and are willing to stand up to me when they think I've gone AWOL or talking rubbish so um, that's the way and I've replowed so what I've done is I've reinvested the profits we made into the properties rather than just anyone can sign a lease um, and the bigger the companies, they don't personally guarantee it; the company guarantees mm. it. So very little personal risk. And I I figured quite early on that property was key to, to businesses because you could have a bad year at work, but the property can go up in price, mm. and that's happened to us very quite often. Mm. So um, of our 52 stores, and incidentally, I haven't closed a single store in this terrible recession we're going through. I'm very proud of that. Mm. Of the 52 stores I own, 47 of the freeholds, which means again, you know. Advice of people: Well, okay, be determined. But as soon as you're able to invest in property, yeah. you know
0: that's that's got to be good advice as well. Yeah, I mean, it must. Have, was there a temptation to go public at any time? Because many people would have jumped at that chance. Was well, it was it a, a a on the table at any point?
1: Because, of course, in, you know, advisors make money out mm. of you taking their advice. Mm. <laughs> um, just like bless them, surgeons. You know, I've been to see several surgeons, and you know, if they don't operate, they don't eat. So you must remember <laughs> when you go and see us. I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I don't mean to be rude about all surgeons <laughs> in one fell swoop. I'm, you know, they're surgeons that save people's lives every day. That day. I'm generalizing. Okay. <laughs> what I'm saying is that when people give you advice, take all the factors into consideration and get more than one opinion, mm. whatever it's about. And I just felt that, yeah, you'd pay a lot of fees to float your company. And then the problem is you're trapped because you'd get a little money on the float and then all the rest of the shares depend on on you. And the moment mm. you want to sell more shares, the price goes down because mm. you've lost confidence. It's, and all the rubbish, you know, entertaining the analysts and the Other shareholders and the press having to go through this routine of of all that nonsense. And I really um, do like doing it my way. (laughs) Look at my hair. They make me get a haircut.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is clear, actually, reading the books. I've read you know a couple of the books that you've written. And, yeah, it it does become clear that it is very much in your image, the company. And and we'll come on to it in a minute. But the focus, it seems to me, is very much on the people, the staff, the people that work for you. That's your... Overriding thing, but it it um, it seems to me that there there are they have to do it your way. Well, okay. So let me, carry on <laughs> why why
1: the company is called Richard Sounds? So <laughs> the first reason was that like my, my new partner thought of the name, which is great. Mm. And but the the really good reason over the years transpired was that it made us accountable. Mm. It had the owner's name on the shop front. And when I want my colleagues to be accountable, which I do when they answer the phone or when they're standing in store, if they haven't got their badge on them and I go in, there's hell to pay. Because I think we should all be accountable. But at least the boss is doing it. You know, talk about leading from the front. I'm mm. not making them doing it. But God forbid, don't tell anyone what my, what my name is or my address. And every receipt has a free post address to me if you're not happy. And you may mm. remember that from mm. when you're a customer. And they're for real. I remember there's a famous... Um, um, Takeaway shop, which used to put the founder's name on the cups, and you, you know it was a joke because whenever you phoned up, I'm not mentioning any names here. Whenever you phone up, you're not really going to get the guy, no. so we don't say phone me because I, I don't take phone calls from customers because I want to hear the other side of it first. Mm. So I asked for it in writing, I hear the other side, and I bend over backwards to take the customer's side, of course. Mm. And I still, and I was doing them on Saturday. Every customer that's unhappy will get a personalized letter from me if they write to me, and I check the letters and I sign them myself. So that and that, and I met. Did a gig in Leeds two weeks ago at the Duck and Drake. A guy mm. came up to me and he said, I know who you are. You sent me a letter 25 years ago and I've still got it. <laughs> really? Unbelievable. But that's a true story. So yeah. going back to my way, so let me explain a bit about this. Because mm. <clears throat> it's a really important question. Because a lot of bosses say, oh, I want to empower my people. Okay, What that means is they want to strip out layers of management and save themselves some money. That's what mm. they often mean. And I don't believe that apart from in two areas So I love my people to be empowered to come up with ideas to improve the organization and we have the most one of the most if not the most successful suggestion scheme in the country Mm. and they don't don't, And I want them to be empowered to help customers. No one needs permission to help a customer Other than that in retail. There's one best way to do most things. I've been doing this for 40 years this month In fact on Thursday in two days time is our 40th anniversary. We started on November the 29th uh, 1978 Okay, so, um, you know, there's one we we, why reinvent the wheel in 50 Mm. stores around the country? So but but the reason it works and is tolerable is that anyone in the organization a colleague on their first day can have an idea that I will They come to me and I will look at Mm. and if it's worthy we will change it You in other words you as a new colleague can make a contribution to the organization's development and that stops it going stale and 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 And, and, yeah, keeps it fresh, keeps it fresh. So, yeah, we are strict because the shop's got to open on time. Mm. You know, if you come in and you want to get to work, it's no good opening half an hour late. Mm. And the stock's got to be on the shelves, and I want the shops to be clean. I mean, Mm. yeah, it's tough out there. I'm in a fiercely competitive environment, don't forget. Sending consumer electronics is terribly difficult, Mm. especially with the the onslaught of the internet. You know, we've seen Comic Go, Best Buy Go, loads of independents go, and we're flourishing. And, you know, thank God we are. But, we, you know, we, me and my wonderful team, work very hard at it. Doing that
0: Do you think a lot of that is down to this sort of attention to detail?
1: I really do think that. I don't think very little about retail is complicated. I mean, IT mm. is complicated. I don't understand all that <laughs> how, how you know programming computers mm. and da, 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 how the tills work. But most of it is you know we've had shops for civilization you know, since the start of civilization. Mm. It's the way of distributing products, and 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 we all consumers want products to buy. So re- retail isn't complicated. There's a lot of detail involved. I mean a real lot of detail. I can show you my worksheet or my papers how, how I do stuff And mm. I, it I never seems to amaze me how disorganized people are in life You know when I started my band I was the manager as, as I said because it was now my band mm. Trying to get venues to reply to emails and I mean you've seen it I'm sure drive yeah. you nuts think you turn up on the day and they say what are you doing? here? <laughs> it's, it's football night, you know, or "Oh, we got no money to pay you and I mean yeah. it goes on and on and on doesn't it? And I and I love it. every time I'm abused by Um, um, These people I secretly think thank God everyone else is not as organized as me because otherwise it would make life very difficult for me (laughs) I don't always say that by the way at the time I get very angry, but you you have to stand back and say well they have the grace of God and no organization is key attention to detail is a big part of being organized you know this morning, I, I one of my colleagues had a, a doctor's appointment. I wished them luck with it. You know, another mate of mine I'd introduced them to someone. I knew they were meeting today. I sent them a text wishing them luck in the meeting, mm. and it's just the detail that hopefully makes us a bit special and makes colleagues feel that I genuinely care, which mm. I do. You know, I also sent a text to someone who had a baby. We we're waiting for the baby's name, and I gave up. and I just sent the parents a <laughs> text saying, Congrats on the baby boy. You know, my HR department sent me an email so I can
0: then text you. Yeah, nice thing yeah. to do.
1: So, you know, I, I really care and I do those little things. I think they're important.
0: You mentioned though that you do. Write everything down and organize. Can can we have a look at some? For sure, well, now or later. <laughs> well, now. Have you have you got anything? Yeah, yeah I've got my daily sheet. Yeah. yeah. So, do you do a big um, organizational sheet? Is that how it works? Well, it's an A4 sheet and it's here. <laughs> Let's have a look. So yeah. this started yesterday. Okay. Okay. So what we're looking at here is an A4 sheet of paper, lined paper with some tiny writing on it. Now, the reason
1: the reason I use a very very fine pen. Okay. Yeah. It's one of these. And, um, okay, and it's, not, yeah. it's got a special one, it's over there <laughs> And the reason is, it means no one else can read it Okay, if it's really small And secondly, I can get loads on a page right, yeah. So I can give you one of those pens if you like the idea of that <laughs> And this is my, this is a pending list at the top And this yeah. is my diary for the week yeah. So number 10, uh, oh, that's Tuesday, 10 o'clock, Guy Kilty, there yeah. you go So this is my diary, looking at what I'm doing Practice there for my big gigs, that's uh, oh, so yeah. the vertical line So this is my list for my All this TC is my wonderful PA Treza And because it's got all been crossed off. It's been jobs that have been transferred to our main job okay. list. When I speak to her once a week, yeah. and the new things that haven't given her yet on there. So this is a weekly a <laughs> weekly sheet. As soon as it gets full, I'll replace it. Okay. It might be one week. It might be two weeks. It was okay. quiet. These are emails to do. <laughs> right. So I've sent this lady um, an email. So I've I've ticked it and I'm waiting for reply. When right. I get a reply, I cross it off because I okay. you forget you have sent me emails. Yeah. These are my phone calls to do. A few there to do today. This is homework to do. Most of that's crossed off, and then I've got. London people to see and the care. This is colleagues I care about. who have got uh, issues, okay. health issues. I'm the lady I spoke to about today is on there with her appointment. There we go. Right. I won't mention her name, but twenty seventh sure. eleventh. So yeah. there you go. This is the chief Second Marks and Spencer. So that's his okay. list. Uh, this is um, uh, the Tax Watch that I've set up. This is uh, to investigate and expose aggressive tax avoidance. And yeah. we've got a meeting next week. Uh, this is the. Uh, <laughs> a famous politician I'm working with. I okay. Probably leave that <laughs> off for now. And um, 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 that's the someone else I'm working with. So that's it. And then this is so M's there. This is the manager's tape I do on a Sunday. Okay. I do a tape for all the stores
0: to listen to. Oh ah, right. Okay. record, record a message.
1: Yeah, I record it on my mobile phone and we transmit it, and they can right. dial in when they're shaving or driving to work or whatever. Amazing. So this so A4 sheet. Yeah, with all
0: this tiny writing on this is your. Tech. It's a piece of paper and a. <laughs> paper <laughs> is that sort. how
1: you've always done it? It's on the day one. Yeah. Right thing. I love lists. And you know, went when I went went to work at Asda working with Archie Norman in the early 90s. I hmm. showed him that, and he loved it, and he did it, and it's pretty bomb-proof. I photocop it before I travel in case I lose it. Yeah. I keep it in a plastic sleeve in case some idiot pours coffee on it, and that's it. <laughs> Very low-tech, and it never breaks. No one ever wants to nick it, and the batteries don't ever go flat.
0: And you say that other people have, have adopted that.
1: Well, everyone I meet, I say, show me a better system. I mean, my memory isn't, isn't great, right. uh, and as we get older, it gets worse. Uh, but I forget very little you know why because I write everything down. Yeah, otherwise I would not have a chance and I've got lots going on I mean, I have four yeah. different lives never mind the most important of all my private life with my missus and You know my downtime, you know yeah. I've a lot going on and I, you know and, and I'm not a workaholic, you know, I love being like you you do lots of things, mm. but you know I, Your family life, I'm sure is also the most important thing and we yeah. need to be organized Otherwise, we spend our life thinking about what we're doing today Whether it's yeah. gonna be written on a bit of paper and you can forget about it. Yeah I really feel strongly about this. I know it sounds a bit weird. I don't yeah. want to sound too. Uh, no, I mean, it, <laughs> extreme I'm, I'm a but... big
0: list writer as well. Not, I don't not in quite as tiny type and, on a bit as big a sheet as that. But I do try and uh, <laughs> I do try and have a list that well, I work through most of the time. And I works. think you do need it if you've got lots of things. You going need on. it. You need. It. But
1: you show me a better system.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And I can beat anyone trying to get a date you know, in their computer, and you know, I've got a paper diary, you know, what, what come, what are we waiting for, mate? You know, you you read next week or not? You know, and they're trying to dial it
0: up and switch it on and load it, boot it up. Anyway, sorry. You mentioned the four lives, though. How would you class those four lives, then? So I've got to give,
1: it sounds tacky, but I've got to put business as not the most important, but it pays for the other things I do. You know, I haven't got a rich dad, I haven't got an oil well, and I haven't won the pools. So, you know, I, I had to go to work, and I... I can't, you know, I say to my new colleagues, all my new colleagues I meet and induct them or welcome them to the business. And I say, look, it's what it is. It's a business. I, I've, I, we have to make a profit to survive, and that's the way of the world. So that... From that point of view, I talk about it first, and I've been very blessed, and I really enjoy it still. I visit every single store every year. All my colleagues have my private mobile and email address, and I'm there for them. And I, I really do challenge people, going, mm. you know, if you're really interested, to be bothered. If you're ever in the shop, what's this, what's this strange-looking guy your governor <laughs> really like then, and see what they say. But mm. I would hope that the majority would say that I genuinely care, and there have been examples of that uh, you know, if you were to pop in. So that's mm. really important to me. So I, I still love the business, still do it, actively do it. and still own 100% of it, mm. which uh, I'm very pleased about that. <laughs> the second part of my life is my philanthropy. So brought about by my socialist housemaster. Mm. I can't, I don't know why, but I do have a conscience. And a lot of business people don't. Maybe a lot of business people do as well. In fact, I think a lot more do than are given credit for. Because we read about the, the real scumbags, you know, the rogues. I'm not gonna mention any names, you read the papers yourself, Hmm. but there are some dreadful people out there that really take the mickey and I think that is terrible. And I've always, for a long, long time, I've, I've treated my staff well from a common sense point of view. And I think the smaller the business, and business owners have to climb up the ladder themselves. They have to work with people. They have to rub along. Mm. If they don't get on with people. They ain't gonna last very long. And if I want my people to do what I want them to do, it helps if I'm decent to them. I mean, it ain't rocket science. This. And this became a more sophisticated philosophy over the years and um, you know, there were a few key moments where I sort of saw the light. I read a great book called *In Search of Excellence* years ago by Tom Peters and Roger Waterman. About thirty-five years ago, they looked at the most successful businesses in the states at the time. They were academics, these guys, and the only thing they could find in common was the way they treated their staff and the way they treated their customers, even in completely mm. different industries. So, I took a microscope and knife to my business and ripped it apart and went back to basics. Even though I sort of... Done it intuitively. I I brought a scientific approach to it, or more scientific approach, Mm. and now that's a really important part. What we did, and that led to me writing 25 years ago, *The Richer Way*, which is still selling very well now. Mm. You know, and had no. about that.
0: Actually, how did that come about? You actually writing the book? So, *The Richer
1: uh, Way* in this very house, um, a a, a friend brought along this guy who just moved up to Leeds to run ASDA, a guy called Archie Norman, Mm. and we had dinner, the three of us next door the room next door and he just sat through the whole meal writing left-handedly i remember taking notes just asking me <laughs> the odd question just switching me on like you're doing and letting me <laughs> rabbit rabbit away and um at the end of it he said i'd like you to come in and meet the board this is 1992 and um i said okay and, and i did the same thing then and he said "Well, i'd like you to work with us and uh okay I said but I'm only a small retailer I'm five foot seven you know <laughs> and they, they were huge they had 200 massive superstores and mm. I had then much few, half the stores have got now. and uh he said no you, you interesting stuff you're talking about the way we treated our staff you see and we put in some amazing stuff I was there two and a half years I went in every Friday just drove up to Leeds that's the house mm. I sat in whatever the meetings were I just sat in them or he'd parachute me say look go to Pudsey you know for, and just lift up the carpet and poke about a bit at Pudsey's mm. store and I just found some really interesting things reported back to him and i got to say him, he's a super bright guy Archie and um uh Academic background, quite different personalities. I'm the retail entrepreneur. I would describe myself as, and he's the most amazing professional manager. Mm. So there was a lot of difference in personality, and uh, uh, but he, he embraced my ideas on the people stuff, really. So cultural change, uh, self motivation, customer service, communications, and the suggestion scheme. I mm. had a big, I'd like to think he would confirm I had a big input into, and. Uh, so after doing that I couldn't quote Ansel because they were clients technically mm. and so I wrote a book I had real confidence then that this stuff worked it wasn't mm. just my little business and you'd,
0: you'd been forced in a way to sort of segment it into the, the key elements exactly I had to go yeah. and
1: do talks to people and we found that for middle-aged female checkout operators you know part-time they, you still we, we still saw a difference. We treated them well. Mm. You know, this was not complicated. And I was right. You didn't have to be a, a young lad selling a, a stereo to be motivated by the way you're spoken to. No. By saying thank you and well done, you know, and, and all the obvious stuff, which you very kindly said you read the book. So, you <laughs> know, not go through all that again. But, mm. you know, recognition and fun is a big part of motivation.
0: And that's been a big success, hasn't it? The book, The Richer Way.
1: Well, yeah, I did no publicity because I wanted to keep my head down. And mm. we sold sort of 50,000 copies of a very specialist niche Business book, you know, say without publicity
0: over 25 years. Mm. Did you write it yourself or was that would you get help to do that or?
1: Like I'm sitting here today with you. I dictated it right into a tape machine with a a wonderful journalist writer called Kate Miller and she absolutely brilliant so, mm. and she typed it as if it's me talking yeah. I mean it really well it
0: is. actually does sound like it's. that's what's really nice about reading that book obviously with the content but it 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 reads as if it is someone talking to you well, so you know that, that's that really explains it really
1: important to me yeah really important to me it's fantastic and mm. uh, uh, yeah great and and great to her
0: yeah so we got to two of the four I think now hadn't we we got to so, yeah. yeah the richer sounds well, the, the drumming
1: we started off with first
0: okay yeah so <laughs> drumming
1: Listen, so the second part I started saying about my social conduits So many years ago, probably 30 years ago, we set up a charity foundation. And I think the early days we were giving 10% away. And then we've, quite a few years ago, we increased that to 15% of our profits. Mm. Uh, We give away. And 1% of our profits we put into a hardship fund. For Colleagues we now call it a helping hand fund because it's a bit softer the terminology Mm. Mm. But it's still there and I tell all new recruits just imagine there's a big pile of money behind my desk Which is a lie because a I don't have a desk They took my (laughs) office from me because I'm not in the office very much anymore (laughs) I have to use a meeting room and b) there's no pile of money But it was sort of metaphorical Mm. and uh, we've never refused a colleague who needs who needs help So we look after our own uh, and we and we give money away and we support about 400 organizations So last year I think uh, i mean the profits of RS uh, Probably circa 10 million views around figure up a give or take and we mm. gave Give about a million and a half away to about 400 organizations now some we do more some we do less um, We try and help projects in certain areas We're particularly keen where we get to know the area well So human rights animal welfare particularly but a lot of little charities around the country we, we see are struggling I mean times are terrible out there at the moment And We move into the serious part of the session is talking about the you know austerity inequality which i'm really interested about and mm. let's get some of the last section of the books in a moment but I set up three charities myself, which I'm very proud of, one very recently and two a few years ago. So one was is called Acts 435, mm. and the I managed to persuade the Archbishop of York to come here for tea, as you do. Mm. And uh, I said, that would he front this for me? Because I thought the church had got a lot of empty real estate that is not used very much. Mm. And actually it's more than that, because I became a Christian actually when I was baptised when I was 47. Um, and desperately keen for the church to improve its reputation, because over the last sort of 10, or 15 years, we've heard an awful lot about... Um, the way they don't treat women or gay people terribly well mm. and you know a lot of bad publicity, not terribly much good publicity and church numbers are dwindling and everything else and I, I'm a great believer in Jesus's message about helping other people and I think unfortunately some parts of the church have lost their way And you know it's, it's justified criticism Particularly when there's been abuse as well Of terrible abuse stories we read about So you only hear about in life generally the bad stuff anyway mm. So I thought <clears throat> why don't we, we You know good news story let's help the poor And let's use the churches to do that And I set up this charity called Acts 435 That's not Acts as in axe murderer That's Book of Acts <laughs> And the name the Archbishop himself came up with Because all the good domain names were gone And the first depends which Bible you read is about helping each other mm. And he agreed to front it very kindly for me me, which gave it real kudos. I didn't want my name to be up front, because A, he's got much more kudos, and B, I wanted to keep my head down. But I, it was my idea, and I found it, and put the money up to get it started, mm. and we've helped many, many thousands of people. I don't know if you've looked at it, but it's a simple website that those in need go to their local church. So we've got, I think, 350 churches signed up to it, and it's growing about 50% per annum, and um, uh, once the church is signed up, anyone in the community, not just the congregation, whatever religion, can go to the church and Post an advert on, on the Axe 435 website and every, every request is paid. I mean, people love it. The donors love it. We've never advertised for funds. Mm. Donors love it. Every penny that's given goes to that person. Because whenever I give a check to the disaster relief, mm. does it ever get there? You mm. never know if it gets there. You don't there. know, I guess, do you? And the beauty of this is people come back because they just they get a thank you from the recipient. It's obviously anonymous. So they don't know the full name. You know, it's John from Yeovil. Mm. You know, needed a, a new washing machine or a bed or kid his shoes or pay the gas bill. And it's very direct and, and it's totally kosher and legit and da-da-da-da-da and incredibly efficient. Every mm. penny the donor gives. And then the gift aid, if they tick the gift aid box, 70% do, that covers all the overhead. Heads and creates a major give fund for, for
0: if we get one-off requests. Right. Complete perpetual virtuous circle. Yeah. Really proud of that. And that ten percent and then fifteen percent of profits going to charity. Yeah. That was from the early days, was it? Right from the start, was it? Or pretty, pretty soon, much soon from the start?
1: I mean, as, as soon as we had profits that were meaningful.
0: And so. where, did, where did the motivation to do that initially come from? Then you know, when because you were very young then to do that. Yeah. Well. <coughs> and obviously, trying to survive. You know, just with one shop, it's not necessarily a an easy decision to do that at that stage when you were, you Well, this know, is this compassion thing.
1: And, you know, we, we read in the papers, don't we, about people getting beaten up and robbed and people just walking by and, and, and having accidents. People tre- walk over them on their way to work. Mm. I just can't... I mean, I'm mean, only a little fella. I wouldn't <laughs> want to take on 10 skinheads. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I have... I've just got a compassion gene. I think you either have, or you haven't. I mean, you seem a really empathetic, nice guy. I'm sure you have as well. You'd mm. stop and help someone in trouble, and then you either have or you I'd haven't like to got it. I think so. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I, you know, I, I just, I do care. And I read these stories. You know, I read about Fiona Pilkington. Do you know about Fiona Pilkington? So, no. She suffered horrendous antisocial behaviour with her daughter Francesca who was disabled and she oh. it makes me, my eyes well up, think about it and she reported it to the police and social services over 20 times and in the end she set fire to herself and her daughter oh, in her was car. a couple I, of years ago read, wasn't it? It was yeah. a good few years, probably yeah. 10 years ago Is now. it? Right,
0: okay, yeah I remember the, I remember the story. And though.
1: it made me cry at the time I read the story I just couldn't believe what a society we're living in and then I thought well what can I do about it? So the first thing is research antisocial behaviour and there was nothing for people out there nothing, you're trapped in your home, you don't to go out because of the abuse, what do you do? Everyone's online in this country, or a great majority of people are. So I set up the second charity, was ASB Help, Anti-Social Behaviour Help, and we have thousands of people a week going onto our website for advice and every angle, every aspect, everything we can do to help them. And we are now the spokespeople for the industry. You know, mm-hmm. talk because there's no one else doing it by default. I hope because we're good, but you know, we mm-hmm. were the only ones there. But we're, the important thing is we're helping. We're actually helping people who are really lonely and desperate and trying to improve that. So that's seeing a gap in the market and doing it myself. Mm. Again, on a shoestring, helping thousands of people, very proud of that. And the third one, while well, I'm just telling you about the things I set up, is is TaxWatch. So writing my new book, which, which launched this year, mm the ethical capitalist, Um, I did a lot of research, a lot of reading, and I was horrified by the abuse that's going on by the very wealthiest, not all the very wealthiest, but a lot of wealthy people in our society are not Mm. paying their dues, okay? And it's called aggressive tax avoidance. And the tax gap that these people are effectively stealing from the state, we don't know how big it is. And actually, I want to fund a body of work to to prove this, but it's estimated, the revenue thing its as little as 35 billion a year. But They don't count stuff. They don't know Mm. and of course. You don't know what you don't know other Mm. academics have have put it as high as 120 billion a year Now we're in a terrible times at the moment I mean you and I thank God have got decent jobs and Mm. we're we're financially okay, but people are finding it tough now We give money to 400 organizations a year. We get an awful lot of letters and we see an awful lot of tragic situations When you look at the prison service, which is bursting at the seams the total prison service costs less than 3 billion a year Mm. so just imagine If as a society we could recoup that 120 billion what it would mean is not only could we take pressure on this terrible austerity and inequality But you and I the good guys wouldn't have to pay a penny more in tax Mm. Because it would be funded by the roads that get away with murder So that is my mantra and a big part of my new book Mm. on ethical capitalism that businesses depend on the state for the infrastructure I depend on the lorries to drive my lorries from the warehouse to the stores. I rely on the police force to protect my, my assets. I rely on the schools to teach my son mm. how to read and write. And I depend on the hospitals to mend my wonderful colleagues when they get sick. Mm. So I should pay tax in this country. It is only right. Only right. And I'm happy to do it. What I'm not happy about is other people getting away with it when I'm mm. paying. I have no problem. And we should pay more in tax. So I think this state that in the UK we pay about 38% of our GDP and taxation, mm. and I the figures change every year. D- Denmark is something like fifty-two percent, uh, and I think the government are trying to get it down to something like thirty-six. And already the pips are squeaking. Mm. I'm mixing my metaphors here. The dams <laughs> will burst. You know mm. these prisoners who are treated like well, I don't want to swear, but they're treated like rubbish in, in prison. Mm. They're going to come out bitter and twisted. We need to spend money, invest in rehabilitating. Offenders, we need to treat people better. We need to reduce inequality in society desperately And we can do it without the good guys paying more in tax. So mm. that is something I care very much
0: Do about. you think it is achievable to get to a point where that money can be recouped? I mean because that would okay. take that takes serious legislation I guess doesn't it or it changes to legislation? Well
1: uh, depends how long you've got we can talk about that <laughs> for a bit but so the reason for my third charity mm. and it's called Tax Watch Now, let me tell you a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Mm, So I read a a great book called The Great Tax Robbery by um, a writer called Richard Brooks. And at the end of his book, he said, this country needs... It's a fantastic book about what is going on. And if you haven't read it, I can get you a copy. Uh, Really great. Remind me at the end, I haven't written it down. If I don't write it down, I won't remember it. (laughs) So I'll happily send you that. And at the end of the book, he said, this country needs an organisation to monitor and investigate and expose this aggressive tax avoidance. Mm. So as you do... I had to track him down because he's also a private eye journalist and he's not easy to get his phone number or his email address. But I got hold of his agent, got his email address, invited him for tea, as you do. Mm. Uh, this was in London. And uh, he looked me up and down, what do you want? And I said, <laughs> well, um, I think is a great idea and I'm going to fund it for you. Mm. And, he, he, you know, he mellowed a bit at that point. And he's, a, <laughs> he's actually a wonderful, wonderful man. And mm. uh, he's written a fabulous book since called Bean Counters about the, uh, the power of the big Accounting firms have it all around the world okay, yeah. quite incredible And so um, we got talking and uh, we put a team together and we had our first big story in the mail on Sunday City page a few weeks, about a month ago mm. So um, we, we're off up and running now it took a few months to get a team together got a great guy called George Turner running is a CEO fantastic, so that's the third thing I've mm. set up which is very much a You know more educational
0: Research, um,
1: you know, but, but working along these lines that I care about I've done something about it.
0: Mm. Just to re- let me get this straight then now. So the four are music.
1: Well, start with the money. I've got to make the money to yeah, the pay for all those drum kits. So yeah. we've got to start with the business, then the philanthropy, yeah. which is giving money, but also doing it myself, setting up. And I want to set up a lot more charities. Yeah. So I'm really keen to do that. Okay. Um, um, I spent a disproportionate time on music the last 13 years. I yeah. might have a little break from that. So the music. And I want to get, so philanthropy second, thirdly the writing, right, yeah. and fourthly the music. Yeah. So the music was my therapy, but it grew into something much more than therapy, and it grew into thousands of hours a year, and yeah. it took up a lot of time, and da-da-da-da. So I'd like to just just
0: foot off the pedal there and do more philanthropy. And are, you, are there more books in you, do you think?
1: Well, I've just written, I'm in the process of writing, I'm on the third draft at the moment, of a, of a social housing reform proposal. Now, if I published it as a book, I wouldn't sell many copies, (laughs) unless for insomniacs who have trouble sleeping. But um, it's something, again, I'm really interested in as well. as penal reform as Mm. well. So and the criminal justice system is absolutely falling apart at the seams. I mean, have you read The Secret Barrister?
0: No. Right, remind me at the end, I'm going okay. to send some books.
1: If you have time, Reading do you list. ever read, yeah. do you
0: have time to read? I do read, I've got, but I've got a pile of books by my bed that it just grows okay. all the time. All right. but well, it's good, though, many. I don't mind. I'm always in the market for a new, good books to read. And they're
1: not, because I like them, they're not complicated. <laughs> they're not academic heavyweights. But I'll, I'll send you, uh, if you don't mind, I'll send you a couple of books. Okay. Please. Um, so, uh, social housing reform, Passion of mine. So I I bought property over the years. I bought my shops. And then when a shop next door to a shop came up, I, I might buy it. So I've got several hundred properties I own. Mm. So I know the system. Okay. And over the years, I've made money from retail and money from property. And let me tell you, running a real business, a real mm. business I mean like a retail business, is a heck of a heck of a lot easier than, than running a property business mm. and the joke uh, joke example I use is if you buy a property and go to jail for 10 years and come out it's double in price which proves it's not very difficult <laughs> now I'm simplifying it and I'm sure a lot of you know, developers will be bristling over their cornflakes when they hear this but um, I, I do think we have to balance the books a bit here and uh, so social housing is horrendous So the social housing situation at the moment is horrendous mm. <laughs> and what we have to do is something pretty drastic to create whether it's one, two or three million homes for people who deserve them. And <laughs> it's a big project, probably beyond the remit of our chat today, <laughs> but it's a project I'm working on.
0: Okay. And that's going to be, that's another book that's coming out of that too? Well,
1: no, it's a project. That's it's a, a project, okay. Itself, but I am working, I'm trying to lobby uh, politicians at the moment and uh, their research groups I'm working with. I'm quite proud. Of, I mean, if you're interested, so I can give you a copy of mm. my drafts that, there. Why so not? Something else yeah. I can give you if you're interested in it, but the social <laughs> housing situation in this country is a disgrace we mm. sold off under right to buy a million and a half homes Which at the time like a lot of people I thought sounded like a good idea when Maggie did it Give people a stake in their communities and da 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 da, but the trouble is we didn't replace them mm. There was a ban on councils borrowing money and the problem is now we have an awful lot of people who are either sober serving or living very unhappy cramped lives because of this or Literally living in their car, living on benches, horrendous, horrendous situations that, you know, thank God we don't have to endure. But there's something I can, I feel I can do something about because I'm very, I feel I'm quite knowledgeable about the sector mm. and I'm a poacher turned gamekeeper. I know all the tricks and there's some outrageous things going on that we can stop.
0: One thing I meant to ask you um, about when you started Richard Sounds was why hi fi equipment?
1: Okay, well, I'm afraid I've got a real simple answer to that. <laughs> so I was 14, so I was too young to drive, so I couldn't trade right. in cars. And I only had £10 stake, so I couldn't deal in property uh, with £10. So, in the early 70s, long before you were born, uh, hi fi separates. Not that long. Well, (laughs) certainly sometimes we were. So, hi fi separates had suddenly taken off. You won't remember. We used to have these huge. Uh, monolithic gramophones, yeah. which was a piece of furniture out of the f- post-war fifties, and then someone de- invented a turntable and an amplifier and a pair of speakers, and this was cool. Hmm. And all the kids at school wanted hi-fi separate, so that was the thing. It was a boom thing in the early seventies. And I, look, I when we had power cuts uh, in 1974, when I was fifteen. Yeah, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit I made a lot of money from buying and selling candles because people were in the dark and I, you know It was a terrible terrible business, you know that the strikes and closing the mines, and I'm You know, I'm embarrassed of profit profited in a tiny way from that But yes, I was you know, and I would buy second seconds from the markets in Bristol of mugs from the Staffordshire potteries and sell mm. them to to, to, to boutique shops who wanted to sell mugs. So, you know, I did try a few different things, but, yeah. but hi-fi was the thing that was, it was sexy, it was it was interesting, it was growing,
0: and I stuck with that. And did that come from the the music, when you say, you know, you were drumming then, did that partly come from that, do you think? Well,
1: I like music, you know, and mm. again, we had some great bands, you know, in in the uh, early, who are your heroes early 70s, late 70s, well, Elton John, you know, and those, we had Dave Bowie again was then, and the Beatles, my first album in 1966 with Sgt pepper when i was seven or was it 67 when i was eight i can't remember <laughs> it was a long time ago and mm. that was you know the beatles were very exciting growing up with all that do you so, yeah. remember
0: seeing them for the first time and
1: i never saw them live ever. Well, I
0: mean, on tv or, or any, yeah i mean we see clips
1: now and i can't remember the first time i saw them live but i remember the you know my dad buy me singles you know she loves you and you know yeah. can't buy me love and and when I was very, yeah, barely a teenager, I had their albums and a little shoebox cassette recorder. I remember we drove to uh, France once in dad's old battered Renault. We, we <coughs> mum had a friend who had a flat we could stay in. I remember listening with headphones, didn't have, you know, Warmans then, you know, the whole journey listening to the Beatles album, you know, just incredible. And Simon and Garfunkel as well, mm-hmm. you know, great tunes that are timeless and maybe people think I'm a bit sad but i mean it was it was great music and a lot of it's still around today
0: mm. and did it doing the hi-fi equipment did that make you sort of feel part of that in a way that you were part of the music industry in a in, one, be in some grand,
1: way. as to say industry, but yeah, hi-fi separates were cool. We had this yeah. great music. We had growing up young lads into it, and it was yeah, it was a cool thing to sell. It was cooler than selling mugs and candles, that's for <laughs> yeah. sure. And I stuck with the hi-fi.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you as well. I just remembered about the the whole people side of things. I know we touched on this before, but and because it does shine through from your books that it's so much of your focus is about your staff. And does that, do you think that directly comes from that M&S experience or do you think it's, do you think that was something that you sort of learned as you started employing people for well, yourself? Exactly. The two things, the M&S experience of my housemaster at school
1: and then actually doing it. Because mm. I'd had that behind me thinking about it and maybe the compassion genes we're talking about. Mm. But, you know, I feel for my people. You know, we had our busiest day on Friday of the year. It was Black Friday just oh, yeah. gone. You know, and we had, oh twenty-seven 27 records uh, that week, and I phoned every single manager, you know, and nearly everyone answered, even though they were absolutely exhausted. They wanted to take that call, you know, because mm. they're so proud they worked so hard and done so well for the business, and I was so pleased I did it. I felt guilty phoning them late after a <laughs> long day, and actually, as they took the call, they were so pleased, and that just, you know, warned me. I mean, I really care. I, you know, we, we I get a colleague care report every week. You know, a lot of bosses get Reports about all sorts of things, and I the most important report, even if I'm off, I get a colleague care report, and it can be anything from four to twelve pages long, of colleagues that are receiving uh, uh, healthcare, um, counselling, uh, suffered bereavements, anything, and I have their personal mobile, mm. and anyone's, it's updated for me every week, and I will pick up the phone to people, you know, and and I think they tell me that means a lot, and I, you know, I hope it does. I mean, I do it because I genuinely care about them. Mm. I mean, it's this empathy. And I think the problem is the two problems. Companies either get so big they lose touch. And I always think when you walk in and see the cleaners in the morning, Mm. you know, you haven't lost touch. When you're running a company with mines in Angola, you don't see the conditions of the poor miners. So mm. one thing is scale and the other problem, you become removed when you have a public company because the shareholders don't walk in and see the cleaners in the morning. Mm. Their shareholders want their screw twice a year and their dividends, they don't give them monkeys about the conditions of the cleaners or the miners. <clears throat> and I think more's the pity, both are situations, the bigger the company mm. and, and the public companies, we have this obsession with shareholder return and I think that can be very negative.
0: Mm. You mentioned a bit earlier about uh, being baptised at 47 and you're involved in religion, you're a Christian now, aren't you? And how did that all come about then, you know, being baptised at that age? Well, my wife's a- always been a practising Christian mm-hmm. and I would go along as a passenger to church and
1: just sit there quietly and I, not, you know, and, and and enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, nice people in here, you know, and I went along with it. And then someone had tipped up the vicar, this is a quite a big church in in York, and I can say the name, uh, Sir Michael Belfry, where I actually got back, became baptised, mm. and uh, Roger Simpson, who's now uh, retired, was the vicar there, and someone had tipped him off, I think, that I had a few bob, and I'm not <laughs> saying that he's a mercenary character, he's a wonderful character, in introduced <laughs> me to God, but he, he latched on to me, bless him, and what he wanted to do, actually, and it was for good reason, he wanted to set up a, a, a business group to do the Alpha Course. Now, have you heard of the Alpha Course? No. It's an introductory introduction course to Christianity over ten weeks, it's sort of an hour a week for ten weeks, and he'd mm. done a business... He'd been in Vancouver, and he'd done a course of business people there, and he really enjoyed it. He liked business people for some reason. And uh, he, I said, well, you can use my home, and I'll provide the food, and uh, you bring the people. And we did. And after 10 weeks, everyone enjoyed it and asked him to do it again. So he did another 10 weeks. And after that, they, they wanted him to carry on. He said, well, this is my Friday off. I'm sorry. <laughs> do it yourself. Right. So that was, um, that was 12 years ago. And we still meet every Friday. Now, if I'm traveling or not around, I don't go, but I let them use my house. I provide the lunch. And we now have well over 100 people that come, but they don't come every week. So every week we get 20 to 30 guys. Now, it's men only, and I support a women's group that meets in parallel because I don't want to be accused of sexism. Mm. The reason we do men only, this was his suggestion, is that men feel comfortable talking about men's things as women do themselves and that's the way we do it and i say i have very happily funded it's the wives meet somewhere else i offer them to use our premises they didn't want to mm. so that's been a nice thing we do and a lot of men like it because they can talk privately and they can talk back so we we do readings and a hymn and we have different subjects and different members come up with a theme and it's a discussion group more than a someone in a pulpit talking at you and they like mm. that
0: and has that that sort of being baptized and Embracing that has that had had a big impact on your life? Well, it reinforced my thoughts it sort
1: mm. of put them into a system because Jesus explains it Well, you know and and in such simple language from 2000 years ago and an awful lot of things That happened in the church after he died, you know, they're they're arguable, debatable, hard to prove and all the rest of it. And Mm. I don't get too stuck into scripture because then you start arguing with people over taking things too literally. And I just don't do that. And I just like Jesus' message and I think it's pure and simple. We just stick with that. I won't fall out with anyone. And please remember, you know, Jesus didn't go to church. You know, he would teach under a tree and he was actually disillusioned by his own church, the synagogues where he'd grown up. And he Mm. just wanted to, you know,
0: people to, to... to do it his way which he thought was the right way which I totally agree with hmm. you mentioned your wife uh, this then when we were talking about this I mean you're in the band together has there ever been any Creative differences in the band. There's ever not been any creative differences. <laughs> well,
1: I um, with some trepidation I invited her to join. And we do have our moments. On the one hand, we have great highs together, you know. And every gig is analyzed in in in, in to the nth degree. Mm. And every gig is different, as you all know. It's amazing and unpredictable. So mm. when people say are oh, you nervous about Friday at the Albert Hall, you just worry about what can go wrong, you know, mm. as I said before. But um so yes, we have our moments. The hardest thing is when I feel I've been let down by perhaps members of the band and the immediate band are terrific the five five of us get on terribly well and they're really good guys but sometimes we've had other people join us and supplement the band and maybe they're not doing things as I'd like to. And maybe I have to sometimes tell people off. And then, of course, it gets very difficult because Rosie then tells me off and, you know, it all it all, it all hits the wall, as they yeah. say. So on those moments, I sometimes regret inviting her. I do love my business where I am the absolute authority, <laughs> the benevolent dictatorship um, uh, mode. Sometimes suits me better. But no, I hate upsetting people and I regret it afterwards. I do lose my temper sometimes. You know, I have many faults, you know, that's the next tape we'll have to do, but uh, that'll be even longer. But of course I have many faults, and sometimes I, I, I lose it, but I do regret it, and I'm sorry, and I do apologise afterwards. Fair enough.
0: All right, I'd like to... Um, Is your
1: wife in your band?
0: No, she's not. No, <laughs> no, she she's not involved. So uh, She's very happy for me to do it. But there you go. There you go. She, I think, yeah, so similar, similar incidents would probably occur if, yeah. uh, if we were in together. It can
1: be difficult, but it's lovely, but, you know, it, it's very, very nice. Doing it Together and she turns mm. around we're on stage and I'm smiling at her and you know She's got the real hard job to do I'm very small so I can hide behind my cymbals, <laughs> and I can walk in a venue after a gig and people don't even know I was playing drums. Yeah, but she is everyone's looking at her and she's Inan, front and center She's really got a tough job to do and mm. I totally respect her for, for going out in front of 5,000 people All eyes on her and you know when you're on the stage as you know mm. You cannot see the audience you no. know a bit in these bigger venues. You cannot see anyone. It's completely daunting
0: and weird Mm. anyway <laughs> so i'd like to finish uh, by asking three questions that i ask everybody okay so the first one is do you have like a, a routine every day that you go through i know you've got your list so that's clearly a, a sort of weekly or fortnightly routine that you is big part of what you do but is there is there a set of things that you do every day to get ready for the day definitely as i get older so i'm Please God, i going to be 60 in a few months, and my dad dropped down
1: dead as soon as he was 60, and uh, i was sort of rather mindful of that. His mm-hmm. dad died at 58, and I, you know, I'm in this lovely position. I'd like to be around for a bit longer, so I do look after myself. I know it doesn't appear like that, but um, <laughs> I do... Uh, I, I do my stretches and my exercises every morning terribly boring answer that you did ask so, so you
0: do what you do stretches Yeah, I do my
1: hundred press-ups every morning I have 50 sit-ups and I did my 20 squats and uh, really boring 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 But I do all that and stretches mm. and I you know, and I do weights You know when Is I get that as soon
0: as you wake up you just do that I try or? and
1: do it get it done with. I don't enjoy it madly, but I also I get, I've had a bad neck from drumming So mm. I do neck exercise as well So the whole thing the whole caboodle takes about half an hour 40 minutes, but it sets me up for the day so so you mm. did ask, so you're going to get it. And then the other routine thing is I try and eat healthily because, yeah. again, terribly important. You know, we eat so much crap and there's so much. When you're travelling and working, yeah. it, you, you go to a corner shop, you try and find a piece of fruit, you know, it's, if you're lucky. Really difficult when you're travelling. So I do try and make sure I have a healthy, uh, you know, uh, multi-nutrient
0: breakfast. What's your typical healthy breakfast?
1: Well, I mix things together, if you really want to know. It'll be a a (laughs) mixture of of, of low-sugar muesli and nuts and... uh, 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 seeds and uh, a bit of bran and uh, a bit of fruit and some yogurt and some milk and a whole big mixture, and uh, uh, that sets me up and it fills me up. and I feel mm-hmm. it's really healthy. You know, one Brazil nut a day they reckon lowers your cholesterol instead of all these horrible statins. Right. I shouldn't say that. I'm sure some statins are very nice, but <laughs> I tried them and had terrible side effects from fatigue oh, really? and stuff. Yeah. So uh, it's fine when you're 30, but when you get a bit older, you've got to start thinking of these things,
0: I think. Okay, so a very healthy start to the day. Is, try. But try. But, yeah, yeah, very conscious I guess of Mortality Maintaining health Yeah main, Maintaining health When Second question then When you look back over everything and obviously you've got your four different lives So this could be from any of them But What's the one thing If it's possible to say That you're Sort of most proud of What you look back on And you think
1: Am I allowed to drop a few in there Quick ones Yeah right. Okay well Guinness Book of Records was lovely Highest Celsius square foot Of any retailer yeah. in the world Was still in there That's <laughs> for the shopping London that was Bridge. London Bridge. Yeah. yeah, so we're not there anymore. We've moved since, yeah. but we held it for 20, 25 years. I think we're still in there. Yeah, so it's uh, the highest sales per, sales square, per square
0: foot. That's yeah. right, it? Yeah. Unfortunately,
1: not profit. Yeah. And it helps that the shops are small, but hey, we're in there. <laughs> okay. Secondly, when I got the job at, at Asda mm. um, teaching Archie, and Archie paid me a daily rate. And it was the first time my mother had ever appeared in press when I showed my letter of appointment that someone else had judged me to be worth so much a day. And that that the fact that she was proud of me was nice. My parents are long dead now, but of course they both worked at MS, and I think mm. it makes me proud that I'm working very closely with the Chief Executive of MS now, you know, when they were juniors there. And I think mm. if they were alive, they'd be very proud of that. I was given a, 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 a I've got an LVO from the Royal Fam- for service of the Royal Family, uh, and that, that again.
0: What's uh, LVO?
1: So I'm a, a Lieutenant of the Royal Victorian Order, which okay. is a very small um, 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 honour for people, because I work closely with uh, helping Prince Charles's. Uh, some of his commercial organisations, which are non-profit making. Mm. So Dutch originals, I did about nine yeah. years there, and uh, uh, and it was not, not making any money when I went there and helped them turn it around with other people, uh, to help them, and I did quite a bit there. And that was quite a, a rare honour to get. I mean. My wife always teases me that I'm a complete fraud because I got it for selling biscuits, whereas when we went to <laughs> St. James's Palace to collect it, there were people there that, you know, climbed Everest, they were blind, and, right. and, you know, the most amazing, amazing people had saved lives and, and fought for their country, and I'd sold biscuits. <laughs> and she never, never ceases to drop it in conversation whenever I'm telling anyone I've got an LVO. <laughs> and she always adds for selling biscuits. <laughs> anyway, bless. So, I don't know, they were fun things. I don't know, they're, they're things that come off. The, it was exciting going to get a medal yeah.
0: from Prince Charles of course it was yeah great well that's nice as well about you, your parents you know the whole MS yeah full circle
1: and if it was next week i could tell you about the elbow hall but i yeah. you know i can't <laughs> i can't play that one yet yeah.
0: so um final question then and this could be anything it could be music or a book or tv that you're watching what are you enjoying sort of cre- culturally or creatively right now at the moment gosh
1: well for my new book I had to read lots of other books to research and I really enjoy that. I got mm. out of book reading because we just don't get time. Mm. And I did enjoy that and I've got a list of 16 books. Management today asked me to talk about the books I read recently so I had to make a list. I know it's 16 <laughs> and that's been that's been great. And I love watching uh, I like movies mm. a lot. I like what was uh, the last one you Thriller watched? series. Um ah, ah! <laughs> We're watching nearly every night. Gosh, oh, I love Beck. So Beck, the thriller Beck on on BBC Four at the moment. Okay, I've they're, never seen that. No, great, yeah, really good Nordic. Um, Okay Crime thrillers Nordic noir Older detective But he's he's not a a sexy heroine He's an older detective But he's a really great guy (laughs) And they're on You can watch them on on Catch Up Really really good Really good And the book I'm reading Is about Adam Smith So Adam Smith The father of capitalism He wrote The Wealth of Nations Now I've got it by my bed And it's been by my bed And it's very dusty (laughs) For some time I do pick it up And try and scan it But believe me It's heavy going Mm. It was written It came out on my birthday 1776 Okay (laughs) Night of the March
0: I knew that 1776 That's from my economics degree that I did really? it's still lodged in my you head you got it in the there well it was the night of March I it,
1: my birthday so there you go um, and uh, and what he wrote there is amazing so I've seen videos and, and read what other people say about him and read a bit myself but it's an amazing book so I found a book that actually talks in still quite high brow detail about his philosophy and I'm reading that at the moment mm. and it's about Adam Smith so that's I am enjoying that and that that's great and he's an amazing guy and uh, a lot of what he wrote is still very relevant today
0: mm. what about music who are you listening to at the moment
1: uh, average White Band this morning. I was in the studio at six <laughs> o'clock, playing along. To average White
0: Band, fantastic. Brilliant. And you know, average which white song? Band. Uh,
1: let's go around again. Yeah. And um, I was just playing through the album, just drumming along, loosening up before my boring cut exercises. Cut the cake. I love cut, cut, cut the cake. The cake. That's an incredible song. I was song. playing along to it this morning. Brilliant.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Let, it's timeless. Yeah. Well, good luck on Friday, and thank, thank you, you very much for talking thank to you, me. No, I enjoyed it.